Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast. Today is a big day, a glorious day, an exciting day, because we have our very own, the one and owned, only, Claudine Roberts of New Ground Comms. Claudine, <laughs> great to have you with us. Hi, Jez. It's really nice to be on the podcast. Thanks so much for asking me. This has been a long time coming. We've talked about recording this for a while. And it's not just that we've talked about this. I've had people messaging me, when are you going to get Claudine on the podcast? Oh, that's so <laughs> nice. Um, I'm not sure I mean, if I believe you. Go on. <laughs> I'm, I'm not lying. I wouldn't lie. I'm a Christian. Um, <laughs> but the reason why we've delayed having you on isn't because we didn't have anything to talk about, but because actually we've been kind of wanting to line it up with the release of your very own book which is out now. You can order it. We're going to put details to where to order it in the description to today's episode. Um, the book is part of a series of books, a small group study guide series cover called Cover to Cover, and it's entitled Violence Against Women, Discovering Elroy. Am I saying that right? Elroy, the God Who Sees. It's a, a seven-week study looking at six different women in scripture who were all victims of male violence. And you draw on um, not only your personal experience, which we may come on to talk about, but you also no doubt draw on your uh, experience as a human, former human rights solicitor and just the kind of analytical mind that you bring to things. Um, I'm, I've, I've got a, a PDF of the book, which you very kindly sent through, and it is superb. And I'm sure will be a massive encouragement to, to many people in our churches. Um, so I'm looking forward to talking about that book, why you wrote it, the contents of the book, walking through it together. Um, so why don't we, where do we, where do we want to start with this today then, Claudine? Why don't you tell us about why you wrote the book in the first place? Yeah, I can do that. It's a long story, so we'll start and we'll, we'll see how I go. Um, but let's start with um, kind of in... In about 2019, God started speaking to me about my own personal experiences of um, sexual violence. And at that time, I probably would have told you that I'd had um, two experiences, that I'd been assaulted on two occasions. Um, but actually, God started to speak to me about a third occasion, something that happened when I was a teenager, so before the other two assaults. Um, and I kind of thought that I'd dealt with my issue. I mean, I'd been a Christian for over 20 years by this point, And I thought that I didn't have much baggage left. I thought that I dealt with lots of my issues. Because, you know, God had been dealing with stuff. It's not like he hadn't. Um, and so I thought I was a fairly mature Christian, you know. Um, but God started putting his finger on, on this particular issue and showing me, kind of revealing that this incident that happened when I was a teenager was a really serious sexual assault. And I think at the time, so I was about 16 and I had just, um, just not even thought about it in terms of an assault. I just um, not processed it. I just put it to the back of my mind and got on with life. Um, and... So then when God started to uncover that and talk to me about it, it really felt like the trauma was fresh and that it only just happened. Um, and so at that time, my mental health took a bit of a dive. Um, I was suffering symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, which I'd had for a long time, but I hadn't, it hadn't ever been diagnosed. I didn't know that's, well, I had a suspicion, but I didn't know for sure that's what it was and I hadn't ever dealt with it. Um, so my mental health started to decline and God was just so wonderful in bringing me through that time. And um, so then during the pandemic, so we went into pandemic. I also, at the same kind of time, took on the role at Newground doing the communications um, and spent the first couple of weeks just crying in the office. <laughs> and the guy, I mean, I don't, yeah, they didn't know what was going on with me, but they were so supportive. And, you know, eventually I talked to them about it. Um, but so there was all this thing, all these things going on, the pandemic, this job. I'd been a stay-at-home mum for nine years. And then God was talking to me about this stuff. And my mental health was just going down and down. And then I started to ask God, Okay, so there's these stories of sexual violence and other stories of violence against women in the Bible. Why are they there, Lord? What do you want to teach us through them? 
um, and why are they included at all and what do they mean and so I was studying the stories for myself and it was really a personal thing I wanted to know I was saying like Lord what do you have to say about what happened to me and I didn't immediately find answers Jez I mean some of the stories are really quite hard to interpret on your own um, even when you've been a Christian for over 20 years, you know, and also I've done the academy as well. It's not like I'm not used to studying scripture, but they're just really difficult to understand. And also in the past, I think some theologians have have put out erroneous interpretations, haven't they? They've interpreted them um, with a lot of victim blaming um, and kind of a misogynistic attitude. Um, so I just found it hard to find the explanations that I was looking for. And <laughs> when I have an issue that I'm grappling with, I'm the sort of person, I, I know you are too, like I just order loads of books on the subject. So <laughs> all these parcels were arriving, um, with all these different books that I'd ordered. And my husband, Paul was like, another book, what are you doing? <laughs> I was spending all our money on books. Um, and I couldn't find a book what I wanted was a simple, accessible book that would just explain all these stories, all these biblical accounts of violence against women and why they're, why they're there and what they teach us. And I just didn't find it. Um, and so, I, yeah, so I was ordering like one book that mentioned Hagar and Abraham, one that had a little bit about Tamar, you know, I was just ordering all these different books and just really digging into the scriptures and writing myself copious notes about them just in my prayer journals. So I just had all these notes that were part information and part prayer like god what does this mean you know like it was just um this kind of mishmash of notes um and then yeah my mental health was still declining and um, because i wasn't able to deal with the trauma on my own um and so eventually <laughs> reluctantly i sought professional help um and i had emdr trauma therapy so that stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing and I don't really know how it works, but it did work and it was amazing. <laughs> um, so I highly recommend that. Um, and it's not a traditional talking therapy. It's kind of a lot of following your thought processes. And so actually, I felt like it was a real gift from God um, because the whole process, it was just God and I having this conversation, you know, and um, with the help of the therapist, I really felt like God kind of led me to a place of healing. Although I wouldn't say, you know, oh, now I'm fine, <laughs> I can totally heal. I would say that that's still a process, but just God brought me out of that dark time into a lighter place. Um, and then also started to speak to me about my voice and the way I use my voice. So my voice is kind of tied into the stuff about the sexual assaults because I, fe I feel like the enemy told me that my no didn't matter in those situations and therefore my voice doesn't matter and therefore I don't matter. And so I believed that lie from the enemy. And then each time I was assaulted, so there were three separate occasions and on each occasion, I felt like that lie was just reinforced. So during this period, God said to me, you're believing a lie from the enemy and this is what it is. So that was revealed to me gradually over a period of time. Um, and so then in my therapy, we started to talk about how my voice does matter and and God was saying you know you know that book that you were looking for <laughs> that would explain all these stories of biblical violence against women well there it is like you've got all the notes you can write it and I was like oh don't be silly lord but <laughs> but you know he was like like that's my plan for you now you're gonna write and and so I just started putting it together and so that's how it came about, really, out of my own personal experience of assault and trauma. Um, and it just kind of came together like t God did it. It was totally God. I didn't set out. It wasn't part of my agenda to write a book. I didn't really set out to do it. It just came about because that's what God told me to do. <laughs> wow. Oh, Claudine, that's so 
Yeah, amazing to hear. Thank you so much for sharing that. There's so much in what you've just shared that I'd love to explore um, and come on to look at your like look at the book in detail as well. Um, so something you, you mentioned you know, when you took on the role at Newground, the Lord brought something to mind um, that previously you dismissed. Um, tell me about how how he did that and how why it was in the first place you think that you may have previously dismissed it and thought it's not that important and then suddenly I guess in a moment of sanctification where the Lord speaks to you and is healing things he shows you something yeah so um the kind of the way it happened was um I was talking to a lady from church we were talking about the Bible. it was in the context of a bible study kind of group and I said oh mate some you know it doesn't even matter what the passage was but I said oh maybe it means this and she said oh no it definitely doesn't because of this and in that moment, I felt really silenced and kind of shut down. And like, she's a dear friend and she wasn't being horrid. And it was just, a, oh no, I disagree with you kind of thing. And that's the end of the conversation. But, but it wasn't a really horrid confrontational moment. It was just a thing that happened, you know, a passing comment. Um, but it made me so angry and it brought something up for me. And I felt like God said to me, so I don't hear his voice audibly, but, you know, I hear it like as an internal voice. I felt like God said to me, oh, it's because you believe in life from the enemy. And I was like, what? <laughs> so there was this moment where I was in the bathroom at home and my daughter came in, um, the middle one. She was about eight or nine at the time. And... She needs to talk to me about something, but I was in the shower and I was like, I'm having a shower. Can you just wait? And I was dismissive and I spoke to her in a way that wasn't very nice. And God highlighted for me, you believe your voice doesn't matter. And that's why you can speak to someone else that you love that way, because you think your voice doesn't matter. That's the lie you've believed. And I was a bit flawed in that moment. Um, so I was like, okay, we're making progress. Now I know what the lie is. And then... I was in church. It was the final Sunday gathering before we shut down for lockdown, for COVID lockdown. So it was the last church meeting. And so I was going through this process, thinking about this lie. And in the worship, I was praying and I said, okay, Lord, when did I first believe this lie? And that's when God showed me this assault that happened when I was 16. And... I think I could have guessed that it would be something to do with my experience of sexual assault. But as I said, at that time, I would have talked about two other incidents, not that one. Um, so I was quite taken aback and the tears came and I felt like God was doing something. And, and although it was traumatic, I felt like I could trust God with it. It was like he had it in hand and there was a purpose for bringing it up. It wasn't to give me a mental health crisis and then leave me alone like it was in in order to deal with it and grow me and make me stronger and healthy you know mm, wow that's, that's wonderful to hear how the, the lord kind of gently led you down that path towards something that was really ultimately been very healing and freeing and ultimately again will hopefully serve a lot of women i mean you talk about your believing this lie that your voice doesn't matter um i would i would suspect that's is that quite a well question is that quite a common experience for women who've experienced sexual violence that they they're left with this feeling of oh my will my voice my opinion that actually doesn't matter is that i don't know if you if you talk to many abuse survivors and um we'll come on to look at some of the the kind of similarities in all the bible stories as well but uh, it strikes me as a very yeah intense destructive powerful experience for someone to have to live through yeah I don't know if it's a common experience Jez I have spoken to other survivors and you know it's well I was gonna say it's surprising maybe it's not surprising but as, as soon as you start sharing your story actually so many women when I'm on a one-to-one -one speaking to another woman and I share my story so many of them respond with oh yeah something happened to me actually um and yeah, all, almost every woman that I've spoken to has had something to share. 
um, and I guess I wanted to bring that stuff about Lies of the Enemy into my book a little bit um, and I did bring it in particularly in relation to the story of Hagar and Abraham just kind of wondering what kind of lies Hagar might have believed about herself um, because I don't necessarily think that that particular lie is common to all survivors but I certainly think it could be quite common because if you say no and that's ignored then that tells you that that no doesn't matter or it doesn't have power behind it you know um yeah so it's it's probably not unusual I would have thought and I think you know you said something happened when you were 16 you kind of dismissed it and I wonder is is part of the reason why you dismissed it that you think this is just so common is this a common experience for women the women live with a kind of a fear of this experience but then also a kind of a, a regularly being re experience of regularly being objectified and so i mean i know you shared in your book that i think the stats are something like one in three women globally will be or have been victims of violence from uh, an intimate partner um so just yeah you can't speak for every woman but talk talk to me about how the the experience of women generally kind of shapes how they remember and think of or even just tolerate and accept um bad experiences in this area yeah um i think actually in my teens i i wouldn't i yeah i would say that i felt regularly objectified but i wouldn't say that i lived in fear of sexual assault until it happened to me to be honest um I think I was quite protected from that or or in a way uneducated actually um it's just not something we talked about and I'm perhaps perhaps you know if I had been more educated in sexual consent and um and what can happen then maybe I would have been more likely to report it afterwards and think of it in terms of a sexual assault. I think more, rather than dismissing it because of thinking it was a common occurrence, I think it was more that I was so psychologically overwhelmed by the experience that I couldn't process it. So it's not that I thought about it and dismissed it, it's that my whole being just couldn't process what had happened to me. I, I was quite a young and naive 16 year old. Um, and I just didn't, I just didn't process it at all. Mm, yeah, I, I can understand that. I can, I can understand that that's perhaps how trauma works. It so upends your life, you know, a bit like, I mean, it's a very different and obviously um, very different example, but we all went, we all went through the trauma of COVID-19 in the sense that our entire understanding of how we thought the world was, was completely upended. Certainly those of us born, you know, post-war generation, like we've just experienced prosperity and, you know, um, predictability in, in society. So to suddenly have something, and, and I know for a while, it's just, I just don't understand. It's an experience of grief. You're like, I just don't understand. How can I accept this? And I, I can understand when it's a, an assault on your person, it's so violated, you know, it's violated your yourself, your identity, who you are, um, and so destroyed that sense of autonomy that I can understand it's like a computer shutting down after being overloaded with too many kind of, you know, conflicting thoughts and instructions. Is it something similar to that? Yeah, absolutely. Just like a computer shutting down. And, um, and when I spoke to my therapist about it um, in trauma therapy, we talked about how when a trauma like that happens, you shut off your emotions and then you can be unable to feel joy and hope and happy emotions because you don't want to feel the negative emotions and so actually it's like someone just puts a blanket over your emotional life and you know it's all dampened down because you just can't deal with it and um, and so we talked about how a lot of symptoms of anxiety or depression you might think come from other things but actually the the real root is trauma mm. and I mean, you mentioned the, the therapy, but were there any kind of accessible Christian disciplines that were particularly helpful in your finding greater levels of freedom and joy again? Um, 
Yeah, I think um, in recent years, so before this all happened, before 2019, I don't know when actually, but but um, a good few years ago, um, I, Dale Barlow, who was my church leader at the time in Oxted, um, did this kind of court, like a short course on how to have a quiet time. And, um, you know, it's not rocket science. <laughs> and it sounds really simple and silly, but but up to that point, it had been really quite ad hoc for me. Um, I had always prayed and read my Bible and journaled, but just not in a very disciplined way. Um, and I just found that course invaluable, um, you know, life changing, really, um, in helping me to do that consistently every day and helping me know what to write down and how to find like the real nugget in what I was reading from the Bible and pray into it. Um, and that, I, I feel like that's transformed my spiritual life. Um, and actually, do you know what the main thing, like this sounds really silly, but the main thing from that was actually taking the time to think about when can I fit this into my day? Because having been, so my kids are, you know, um, the oldest one is 12 now, and then I've got a 10 year old and a seven year old. So when they were little and I was a stay-at-home mum, like I just found it really impossible. And I think God has like a special pot of grace for those for those mums in that time because it's just so difficult. And so I don't feel condemned by the fact that I wasn't having a regular quiet time, but I just found it hard to fit it in. And then when I was doing like so so when I did this course that Dale ran. I think it was in the time where I had like preschool runs and school runs and then a toddler, you know, it was just, it was a chaotic time, but, but actually just putting aside the time to think about when can I fit this into my day and thinking, actually I'm prioritizing exercise. So I was doing workout DVDs and going running and I was prioritizing that as the first thing in my day. And well, not the first thing, like after the school run and after the preschool and everything, when I'd got rid of all the kids <laughs> or just had one left, I was then I was doing my exercise and it was like, no, I need to prioritise reading my Bible. And the best time isn't when I wake up and sit in bed with a drink and do it then. No, that isn't the best time for me. The best time for me is after the school run when I've got rid of all the kids. Um, and so like that was just revelatory to go, actually, this is the time when it fits in. And that's more important than losing the baby weight, like, <laughs> like read your Bible. So, um, yeah, that's been life changing for me and being able to stick with that. Um, yeah, I've found it really helpful. Oh, that's wonderful. Big shout out to Dale Barlow. We love Dale Barlow. Yeah, thanks, Dale. <laughs> I think, I mean, learning to engage with and like well I was talking to someone the other day and we were discussing Christianity and it was someone who's journeying towards faith and trying to understand everything and I was just at one point I found myself saying you understand I have a love affair with this book and it is like this book is words of life and it is my go-to for trying to understand life and you know when you read the Bible some days you read the Bible and you think oh that did nothing for me but that's okay and there are other days you think oh the look but it's the regular discipline of processing life through the lens and the lamp and the light of scripture is really, really good. Uh, well, Claudine, uh, I'm so, you know, in hearing your story, it's so moving and humbling and encouraging to hear how God's led you. But then also now to hear how that is working a redemption, that God, that God has restored your voice to you to the point you're now writing. Um, and uh, like I said, going to bring a massive encouragement to many, hopefully a big challenge to many Um in your experience as a Christian in, in a church somewhere, is this a subject that you've ever heard talked about? Or these these Bible studies, these characters in scripture that you've draw, you've drawn out, are these sermons you've ever heard before? And if not, which I'm assuming it may not be the case, but if not, why do you think that is? <laughs> you know the answer already. Well, actually, it's interesting because um, I was actually brought up a Catholic. Um, okay. And then when I when I would say that I became a Christian, really, kind of when I gave my life to Jesus um, at about 16, that's when I started going to um, a kind of free, a Christian free church. Um, and then when we moved to North London, um, or actually I moved there and then that's where I met Paul. So in about um, 2002, we went to a Church of England church and spent about 10 years in a C of E church. Um, yeah, so I've got 
a mixed bag when it comes to church experience, really. Um, but but no, I mean, I had heard people preach on Abraham and Hagar before, and I'd heard people preach on the woman caught in adultery before. Um, but generally speaking, they didn't really talk about the violence within those stories um, or the experience of those women. Um, it was always talked about from kind of a different point of view, a different angle. And so I feel like, no, I'd, I'd never heard anyone preach on the subject of violence against women. And certainly some of the stories that I've um, looked at in the study, I'd never heard anyone preach on them at all. So the rape of Tamar, the rape of Dinah, these were just totally alien to me when I came to them. I mean, yeah, I just... I'm not even sure I had read them properly myself. Like, I'm pretty sure I've read the whole Bible now, although I haven't read it from cover to cover all the way through. It's always been, oh, I'll focus on this part or this this book. Um, so I'm pretty sure I'd read them all before, but I hadn't proper, properly explored them before. Mm. And so why do you think it is that when, when people talk about these stories, they don't necessarily draw out those experiences um, and why even in reading it yourself, you, you kind of read it, but didn't really register what was going on here. Yeah, um, I think. Well, I think people are frightened to talk about violence against women in case they get it wrong quite a lot of the time, like especially if we're talking about male church leaders and preachers. I think there's a reluctance there because they know that they're not the voice of authority on those issues. So I think that can be really difficult. And so, you know, I, I understand that. I'm not saying it's an abomination that no one's talking about these things because it is really difficult. Um, and yeah, people people don't want to get it wrong. They don't want to cause offence or further harm, further suffering to people who have been traumatised. Um, and so I appreciate that sometimes those those people might not be the right people to be preaching on it. Um, or they just might not have the right knowledge. Um, well, yeah, even for yourself, and you know, I, I would put myself in that category as well. When I read the Bible stories, you kind of you you kind of just read it and don't really think about the human characters yeah. or the, the the kind of power dynamics at play and well, the stuff that you. Sometimes it's really easy to miss the violence of it, isn't it? You can read a story and and because it's so matter of fact in there, it just says that they, like in, in the story of Hagar and Abraham, it just says that um, that Sarai gave Hagar to Abraham as his wife. And so, so, it, so you think, oh, it's a story of marriage. Like that's the picture that you get. But actually in that story, that word is used almost as a euphemism. Like it's just used to describe the fact that they had sex. And so, and it doesn't use the word rape in that story. And I've looked a little bit in the book about why that is. Um, because the word rape is used in the Bible, so the rape of Dinah, the rape of Tamar, but um, the word that's used there, like you said, I'm, I'm not a Hebrew expert, but <laughs> I've read, the, uh, the word for rape used there actually denotes really serious physical violence as well, so those women were kind of really forcefully beaten up and raped, um, whereas in the story of Hagar, it's kind of more of a situation of like coercive control, um, sex without consent, but not necessarily physical force or, or having been beaten up. Um, so I think the violence is really easy to miss and it's kind of hidden. But actually, once you put yourself in Hagar's shoes and you think about the fact that she was really young, she was a slave, and there's this guy who's in his 80s, but he's got a lot of power. He's the head mm. of this community. And also, when you think about that family unit and you think about Abraham and Sarah, you might think it's like a like a, um, a nuclear family, you know. But actually, in um, previous chapters, it says that Abraham's had like several hundred warriors, Okay, so it's like a big community with loads of men in its army. It's not talking about just a nuclear household. And so Abraham's got all this power and there's this total mismatch of kind of power and authority here. And so she doesn't have any choice. And that's reflected in the fact she's not even given a voice in that part of the story. Um, and so, yeah, I think it is, it is easy to miss the violence in some of those stories. 
Um, but actually, if you try and put yourself in the female character's shoes, then it starts to be revealed. Mm. So, you, I mean, just as an overview, you look at Hagar, Dinah, uh, Jephthah's daughter, the unnamed concubine, Tamar, and the woman caught in adultery. Uh, I guess one, one, one of the questions I often have when I'm reading, particularly the Old Testament, I guess, and particularly Genesis, is kind of, it's an ancient culture. Um, and it's a like it's a it's a foreign culture as well. Um, and and I think part of what happens is you read it and you think to yourself, oh, that's just what they did <laughs> without thinking. How is this right or is it wrong? I don't often think with that kind of, oh, they're doing something wrong here. I'm just thinking, well, that's just what they did. And, and partly that's reflected, like you said, the Bible just records things in such a, a matter of fact way. Um, and so I guess one of the questions that I was thinking about was given that the Bible isn't like a, a kind of morality book that says this was really bad and he shouldn't have done this, but it just states it. What is it that you can see? Maybe, maybe we start with just looking at the story of Hagar, as you kind of talked a lot about it there already. What is it that you can see where that gives us clues that we're supposed to understand, oh, this was wrong? Like, it's not just this is what happened, <laughs> but it's that this he shouldn't have done this or they shouldn't have done this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, so so there are clues in the story. Um, and I think just generally, we know, don't we, that it's a story of how Abraham fell into serious sin because of his lack of faith that God would fulfill his promise to them of a son. So quite often we see the sin of, oh, Abraham and Sarah didn't have faith and they made their own plan. They decided to make it happen for themselves instead of relying on God. So we know that they sinned in that way, but we miss the other sin as well, the sexual sin. Um, or if we do see it, sometimes we think it was Hagar's sexual sin as well, so that she was like in on it. You know, we don't see that it's a sin of, of serious sexual violence. Um, and yeah, so I think there are clues in the story. Um, the way that they the way that Hagar's voice is entirely absent is a real clue. Um, it's like this, it's like a transaction, isn't it? It's like Sarah says, oh, why don't you use my maid? And then she gives her, it says she gives her to Abraham as his wife. And so it's like treating Hagar as a possession. Um, and actually, you know, reading about um, domestic abuse in particular, it's often this attitude of kind of, entitlement and ownership that underpins all relationships of domestic abuse that's what the experts say um, and so we see this play out in some of the stories and the, the story of the unnamed concubine as well um, and to an extent with Dinah but yeah it's like this this attitude of ownership and entitlement that I can do whatever I want with you because you belong to me you know um, I think that's probably the main clue mm. I mean, you you mentioned the the story of the unnamed concubine. There's, there's just fewer examples in scripture of just horror, <laughs> horror upon yeah. horror of how the community has just, um, the the nation has just reached its lowest point in morality, hasn't it? But what I, what I noticed well, so you, so your chapter headings are um, you, you obviously got the character you're looking at, but you've deliberately you kind of framed it so that you're not explicitly looking at the individual, but you're actually drawing out what does this tell us about God. Is that, yeah. So in, in Tamar's case, you got the or Hagar's case, you got the case of the God who sees me. Then we got God, the rescuer, God, the father, God, the loving husband, God, the king of kings, God, the just judge. But I know from when you've talked before about Hagar, that actually it, there's, there's some confusing elements in the story, even to the point of why is God telling this woman to go back to her abuser? Um, yeah. And you've uh, talked to us about since we're on Hagar still talk to us about Hagar and, and how how you understand and how you kind of came to understand that differently um because so I thought when I, I saw you do a presentation on this I found it very powerful yeah um I think to be honest that was one of the real sticking points for me when I was studying the story of Hagar actually Jez like I just I was really angry with God because I could not understand why he would send Hagar back to that situation of abuse after she had run away. And um, I felt like 
it was literally months like I was studying this story and like arguing with God about it <laughs> like <laughs> you know indignant Lord this was awful like I don't understand why you did this can you can you explain it to me um and yeah I was reading everything I could find um and in the past church leaders have used that story to tell abused women that they should not leave their abusive marriages and I was just really horrified by that and certain that that is not what God intended absolutely certain of it because of because of who who I know God is because I know his character and that conflicts with what else it says in scripture right so I'm I just was totally unsatisfied with that um dissatisfied unsatisfied anyway yes <laughs> so I was really grappling with this point like why God why did you send her back and then I came across it was almost like a passing comment in a book that I was reading okay it wasn't like a major point and it was like an aha moment for me it was like oh God that's why you sent her back and <laughs> it was just um yeah like a eureka moment and it was talking about the following chapter so I think Abraham and Hagar is chapter 16 of Genesis is it but the following chapter chapter 17 um where it talks about the covenant and it talks about um Ishmael being circumcised with his father um and the covenant God made with his people and as far as I could see Hagar and Ishmael were included in that and I was like, that's why you sent her back, God. You invite, like, God appeared to Hagar in the desert. She invited her into relationship with himself because he wasn't Hagar's God up to that point, right? He's Abraham and Sarah's God and Hagar's from mm. Egypt. So she's probably got her own gods from her own culture. And, and she doesn't know who he is, you know, and he appears to her and he invites her into relationship with him. And then he wants to include her in the covenant with his people. And that was just such a beautiful picture to me, like a, just a, a the beautiful way that God wants to bring us into his family and include us in his plan for salvation. Um, even, you know, when we're abused and traumatized and just want to run away, you know. Um, and if Hagar had remained in the desert, she well, she probably would have died because she was alone and pregnant and in a dangerous situation um at risk of you know being murdered or eaten by wild animals or whatever um but she yeah god just invites her back and and actually there's no evidence in the passage that she did suffer further abuse when she went back so you know who knows i i like to think that perhaps god protected her when she went back or that cuz there was no need for that sexual um abuse to continue because she had a son and i think abraham and sarah's man marriage is otherwise monogamous isn't it so i don't think that it's that she actually did become a second wife i um i think that sexual relationship was for a limited time until she had a son um and so you know i I don't know for sure, but I hope that the abuse stopped. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I feel like I can trust God with that because otherwise, like, why would he bring her back? But anyway, yeah, he wanted to include her in the covenant. And mm -hmm. so I think that's really beautiful. Mm. I mean, it's part of the the challenge, isn't it? You, you mentioned it in your book that we refer to men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, etc., as heroes of the faith. Um, heroes but actually they're heroes of the faith their, their faith is what's exemplary about them but often there's very little else that's exemplary about them other than yeah. their faith um, and so it's, but sometimes we can kind of mistakenly elevate these people to being oh you should try to do likewise <laughs> you know no, yeah. the bible almost goes to great lengths to, to kind of make the opposite point no don't do likewise you know i was just talking with someone yesterday god was it genesis 12 or wherever it's god makes a covenant with abraham says i will bless anyone who blesses you and anyone who curses you i'm going to be with you a few verses later a little bit of famine occurs a little, I say a little bit of famine <laughs> He goes off to Egypt and the first thing yeah. he does is tell Sarah, oh, you, you're just my sister now because I'm a bit scared that he's going to kill me. You think, well, he's just, he's just, God has just promised to bless you, Abraham. What are you doing? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I really dislike the uh, the term Bible heroes because, yeah, we've got the example of Abraham. Then we've got Jacob who fails to rescue his daughter Dinah from when she's kidnapped and raped. And, you know, we've got David who commits really serious sexual sin himself. And then when his daughter's raped by her stepbrother, he doesn't do anything about it. Um, I just think these men fail all over the place but that's a really beautiful thing isn't it that's also really beautiful for us because we know that that shows that they're just ordinary um and we shouldn't put them on a pedestal and when we fail there's still forgiveness and god loves us and so i'm not saying it's awful and all these men are horrendous i'm saying like that's really beautiful that god can like redeem them and save mm. them and forgive them like and he can for us too mm. no it's good and you i mean you make that point as well don't you that sarai was just as complicit in this as abraham was uh, and the, yeah. the, the women don't get off scot-free in scripture <laughs> in terms of their behavior was it as um, again, with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in that same chapter, it ends with Lot's daughters um, essentially, essentially taking advantage of him while he's drunken uh, in a stupor. And, and the point of the chapter is to say it, it begins with this awful example of these men behaving horrendously. And the chapter ends with these women behaving badly. And you realize the point of the Bible is that sin is so deeply rooted and such a big problem in the human heart. That it's that that we've got to go to war with, not war with men or war with women. And that's, and I think that's where, you know, there are kind of things going on in, in our culture. You think this is a bit dangerous the way we're just lumping men are this, women are that, white people are this. Uh, and, and, and I can understand what, how we get there. And there's, you know, when no one gets off um, scot free, we're all, we all live with some level of privilege or associative kind of uh, responsibility, get a responsibility by association. So I can understand that. But I think we've got to come back as the Bible does to the point that this is about human sin, not about yeah. male sin or female sin. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also a thread throughout the study that's, that's making the point actually, let's always turn to Jesus because actually, you know, that it's not a great judge who's going to save us. It's not a great king. You know, even a king isn't the answer. You know, mm. it's always pointing to actually the only hero in this story is Jesus. Oh, man, love that. <laughs> <laughs> and I know we've had conversations before about about um, gender and men and women in church and stuff. And and you've been really helpful on that point as well. Just saying, but we're Christians. Like we have to see things through this, through the lens of Christ, because otherwise we can just get into the same game that the world does, where we just try to analyze and understand, and you know, or they're like this, or they're like that, and the problems this, and the problems that. As Christians, we're actually a, a different, separate, set apart people to see through the lens of Christ in this example. Um, well, there's a question then from your own study guide that I thought was a great question. And I wanted to get your answer. For <laughs> oh, this. no, I don't know. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> if you could speak to one of the characters from one of the stories that you've included, which person would you choose and what would you like to say to them? Yeah. Um, oh, gosh, it might make me cry. Jess. Um, <laughs> I think the person that my heart most goes out to is Tamar actually um because she's raped by her half-brother Amnon and like her dad doesn't even go to her to see if she's okay and he's the king right and he doesn't even bring her justice and we never hear from her in scripture again apart from her name mentioned in a genealogy and it's like she's erased by it, erased by rape. And like having been through that experience myself, like I was raped at, um, in my 20s um, in the context of kind of an emotionally abusive relationship. And so I know what it feels like to be erased by rape. And so I think I would want to tell her that she is loved and that her voice matters. And also, oh my gosh, like the way she reacts to Amnon's advances, like she's so quick thinking, right? Because, so when I was raped, um, 
and actually all th- all three of the sexual assaults I feel like my natural response my trauma response was to freeze right which is quite um so you've got kind of fight flight or freeze are like the three really common trauma responses and um for women in the in the context of sexual assault to freeze is really common um but quite often that's misunderstood um and particularly it can be misunderstood in criminal trials and things like that as a form of consent um so yeah so my natural trauma response is to freeze when i'm in danger and it renders me incapable of speech even like um i you know i i was able to say no in those situations but actually anything more than that you know i was just i was just frozen um and so Tamar's so quick-witted she's like well maybe we could get married you know I'm sure the king wouldn't refuse and she's able to kind of come up with these these suggestions to Amnon to try and stop it from happening even in that situation of really grave danger and so I just think she's amazing for that um and I feel like I would want to tell her that she is loved and that she's amazing and that God loves her and that he wants justice for her and that justice will be done because for me that story out of all of them is left so unended or like I'm dissatisfied with the ending of Tamar's story um and so I hope I get to meet her in heaven because I would love to have a conversation with her (laughs) sorry I got a bit emotional there (laughs) I mean there are plenty of things in the world where emotion is the appropriate response, isn't it? Yeah, and this is certainly one of them. You're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, I do think we we love to discuss these things and talk about these things. Whereas I almost think until you've cried about these things, you can't talk about these things. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've done quite a lot of crying about these things. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. And you do see, don't you in Jesus the God who cries about these things before he does something about these things and talks about these things um absolutely yeah it's so important that people hear that that not only you know your story that your their voice matters in the story of Hagar that God sees them but even in just what you said about uh, Tamar that God is not unmoved by this and not unmoved by what happens to people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, let's remember that when, when Moses asked God who he is, and God explained his character, he said, what do you say? I can't remember now, but you know, (laughs) that he's compassionate. That was like one of the first things he says to Moses, um, that he's gracious and compassionate, that he's merciful. Um, and yeah, being, being compassionate is about having empathy, understanding someone's plight and being moved by it. It's not, it's not being, um, yeah, I can't think of the word not being unmoved by it. Yeah. I just, yeah, I think, um, we could, we could all really be better at being moved by other people's plights their situation and I think um in our in our culture we don't allow ourselves to be moved by awful things and that's partly because we're so bombarded by suffering actually with the internet and and tv it's so easy to see what's going on around the world now that if we always allowed ourselves to be deeply moved by everything, then we'd be a mess and we wouldn't be able to get on with anything. But sometimes it's really important to allow yourself to be moved. Um, And there are some people who are really, really good at that. And some of the rest of us aren't so good at it. And we need to practice being moved by things because God Mm. is, that's how our God is. And, and it's important. Yeah. I mean, the word compassion, doesn't it? I think, the literal meaning of that is to suffer alongside 
yeah exactly and I often think that sometimes that's a more useful word than the word love because love just can mean anything in our culture normally it just means strong feeling you know romance yeah and it's been totally diluted hasn't it the word love to the point where we don't even really know what it means sometimes yeah whereas to say you have compassion or to urge compassion is to say you need to suffer alongside this person you know, it'd be like Job's friends before they spoke, just sitting there with him <laughs> in the before dust. <laughs> um, yeah, I agree. It's so important. But uh, I mean, perhaps it's just the, the wisdom and beauty of what you've done with your book is that by, by focusing on God's character, it's the reminder that ultimately what's required is the individuals draw near to God. He's the one who's able to heal and help and lead and guide and strengthen them. Uh, as much as we desire and we want for and we we'll work for justice and you know reconciliation or just freedom and all of that people need to have these encounters with god where they actually sit themselves before god and say tell me how you felt about this because perhaps how we treat the bible characters we think god treats us or we're just people in a storybook um <laughs> Whereas actually when you slow down long enough to inhabit the world of the Bible and the characters of the Bible, you realize they're real human beings and their their experience of life is so real that you, it can move you in the 21st century West. So it is with God. He actually is a person who's inhabiting your space and is there to talk with. And and it's not just for survivors that need to draw draw near to God. Actually, I think we need to we need to tell people that for perpetrators. For men who are who are violent or who could be violent towards women, like Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the change that the world needs. We have the answer. And, and as a church leader, Jez, you're on the front line of the fight against violence against women, right? Because you are the one who can draw men draw people into church draw people to god the one who can change them it's god the holy spirit living in people that changes them that um turns them from their sin convicts them of their sin and brings forgiveness and healing um and so like it's a privilege but also like that's just such an important job, isn't it? To introduce people to Jesus, the one who can change things. And so I believe that that God and the church is the answer to a change in our culture in the UK. Um, and, you know, people don't want to hear that, do they? But it will happen. It happens person by person. It's not going to happen like a huge change in culture overnight. But as people encounter Jesus, they're changed. And so I really have hope. You know, God knew what he was doing and the church is the hope of the world. And I really do have hope for a change in our culture. But, um, yeah, it's it's a challenge, certainly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, as you were speaking, it reminded me of um, Louise Perry's book. That I know a number of people in our circles have read a recent book on uh, what what the sexual revolution why this what coming the title now what the sexual revolution got wrong or why the sexual revolution failed but one of the things she says in there is that statistically there will always be a percentage of males who act violently and are sexually aggressive towards women um we would we would say there's 100 percent of males are sinners so we need to talk to 100 percent of males but from a from a from a church leader's point of view um there will always be a percentage of people in your congregation who are a very vulnerable and at risk and b in danger of committing violence and behaving aggressively and inappropriately not just because of sin but because of i don't know their their wiring statistically speaking i don't know if that's helpful to even think in those terms but my point is that i think hearing your kind of exhortation that church leaders are responsible not just for the creating the right culture which we can talk about but addressing some of these things, what we do talk about and don't talk about does set what we think the values of this community in place are. Um, yeah, definitely. I'd love to just hear some of then your reflections, because I think this is this is absolutely important. If we've, we were talking before we press record about this is a great book for group to study, group discussions. The danger is a lot of women will go, this is great. I'd love to read that. Um, let's say the danger. <laughs> like we'd love women to do that. <laughs> I would that, love lots of women yes, to read it. The danger is the only women. But it's not yes. a women's book. Yeah, yeah, it's not a book for women. Um, and 
I think what I'd really love to see is is life groups really taking hold of it um, and yeah studying it in yeah as life groups so that a really broad range of people get to read it um, but also so I feel like part of my kind of target audience when I was writing it um, was it was because so so first of all um survivors fellow survivors like me who want to know god what do you say about what happened to me but then kind of secondary target audience because i'd never heard anyone any preaching on any of these stories in other churches so i wanted church leaders and teachers and preachers to study these stories so that then they could go on to preach about them in churches because it's all very well me saying I'm available to come and preach in your church on violence against women, please invite me. And yes, I would love that. But also, I want to equip you to talk about it. So um, recently, I was invited to talk to my local deanery synod, so um, Anglican vicars. um, And I just really wanted to kind of encourage and exhort them like these stories are in the Bible, let's talk about them, don't just ignore them, don't just gloss over them. Um, they're there for a reason and let's let's talk about them and and I, I can help equip you to do that this is why they're included in the bible this is what they mean um, and so that's part of the reason that I wrote the study definitely that's really helpful and because you wrote that study like you said at the start that often we can't talk about these because we don't feel equipped well you're equipping people and you're making that one less excuse that people have to address these um <laughs> I hope so. No excuses now. Well, here's a slightly different question, but kind of related. Are there things in Christendom, Christian culture, that you see in the church that cause you concern about attitudes towards women or maybe in culture in general that you think we need to address these things? It's not always the obvious things. It's the the slide towards acceptability or or objectification I don't know is there anything that you you've seen that you think this this does concern me or we need to watch out for this we need to stop that we need to be careful about that those sorts of things yeah um I think it's difficult to talk about Christian culture in general because you know I'm in a very small corner of that um being in a new round church and um I don't think I'm in a position where I have a broader view than that. I think, you know, I have quite a narrow vista um, and I can only really talk about my own personal experiences. Um, But I do talk to other women and so I do hear about their concerns. Um, And so, you know, just one thing um, comes to mind and I know that I've spoken to you about this before and when we've just been chatting. um, One of my friends was talking about an eldership appointment church meeting um, or kind of celebration. And she was talking about how she walked into this eldership celebration and immediately felt the tears coming because up on the stage there were the the there was the guy being brought into eldership a middle-aged white guy there were the other elders around this this man they were all middle-aged white guys and then there was also um the visiting kind of apostle from who um over, oversees her church family um so and someone from their core team so a couple of other middle-aged white guys so she walked into this meeting there were all these middle-aged white guys on the stage they they were in a building with kind of actually a raised platform so it was a stage um and she just saw this sea of male faces and I think she even used the word oppressed I think she said she felt oppressed walking in there Now, I'm not, to be honest, I'm not sure I would have had the same reaction. Even as a survivor of male violence, um, I'm not sure I would have even necessarily noticed that there weren't any women on the stage. Like, it's not something that always just hits me like that. But in that moment, my friend was hit by that and she found it very upsetting. Um... Yeah, so I just think different women react to different things. Um, But it does us good to hear those stories 
and to be aware of how things can make people feel and to think, okay, how can we do that differently next time? Um, because it does send a message. We send messages with, you know, even when we're not intending to, don't we, with everything we do, everything we say. And that sends a message that only middle-aged white guys are, are welcome to lead or will be listened to. And if you're a woman in this church, you don't have a voice. Um, and I think it's a really simple thing to think before a meeting, who have we got on the platform or who, who have we got up the front today? Is there any diversity? Is there any racial diversity? Is there any gender diversity? Let's think carefully about the message that we're sending. Um, and that can be just quite a simple thing to think about. No, that is helpful. I, it's, it's challenging, isn't it? Because I do, I hear even in you know your your response as well that every woman's experience is going to see a situation differently, and often that is a lot about the individual's experience or place that they're at in understanding things. So, but I do agree. I think um, there's a there's a symbolic Eastern Orthodox artist that I follow on YouTube. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> <laughs> But I remember, he, yeah, he he did this really interesting thing about hierarchy and in art, how that occurs. And he said that from the time that we're toddlers, we're taught that when we look up, we see more important things than us. We see our parents. And so you we are naturally wired as human beings. That's why, we, you know, when you picture God, you picture him up in the clouds, although we know heaven is around us. It's not above us, but we picture it above us because height conveys seniority, hierarchy, power. And I do think in the way that we organize our buildings and our meetings, like you said, everything communicates. And if all you see is the elevated people are all men. And actually, yeah. I, I think what you're and if all if, if what you're seeing is the elevated people are all elders, then how does that square with what Jesus said when he said the greatest in this community are to be the servants? Yeah. And I think that's the challenge that we've got in the way that we structure our, because we, it's easy to say, oh, we believe that men and women are completely equal. But if you put people on a platform, you're instantly communicating symbolically, at the very least, yeah. they are elevated above the others. Yeah, and we are um, Whereas actually Jesus said the elevated individual should be the one on the floor serving. So I think we just got to think carefully about our um yeah our, our communication through the symbols and the the way that we present ourselves um and understand that that is how pe that is how human beings are wired to understand importance and seniority is is height um people above them and that was so great because after you and i had that conversation um just almost in passing like it wasn't a big deal was it we had this little conversation and then and then you came back to me like a few months later and said oh Claudine we had this eldership appointment and we had the elders on the like on the on the ground and then all the deacons up on the stage praying for them and there was all these men and women and there was racial diversity and I was like yes Jazz you've got it so you know it wasn't that difficult was it for you to arrange it like that um it's just a really simple thing but I really felt like you'd taken on board what I said and you really kind of got what I was saying Mm. And I, th I think that's you know, partly why I'm so helped by conversations with you by the books you've written is because we're the, the experiences of other people. We won't know about them until we have conversations or until we read books about them. I know in the summer I read Elaine Storkey's book on violence against women and it just opened my eyes to like, oh, wow, the the experience of women globally and how that shapes their experience of day to day life. That's different from mine as as a man who, you know, strong, healthy, middle aged white guy. <laughs> that I am yeah we should mention her book actually it's called scars across humanity um and yeah by Elaine Storkey and it's amazing isn't it it goes through um all the different kind of forms of violence against women so even like child marriage and rape as a weapon of war um you know types of violence that you you might not even have any experience like you might not even have ever thought of as a form of violence mm. against women and infanticide and selective abortion things like that um I just think it's a real eye-opener isn't it yeah it's, a, it's an eye-opener and it's a window into empathy and compassion that ultimately is going to make me uh, hopefully a better human being in a way that I appreciate and understand other people and I think for us as Christians um, we want to make sure we're informed by the heart of Christ. And we do that by by seeing and listening to the people that Jesus loves and their experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Well, Claudine, we are uh, way over time. <laughs> We've had a great time. We have. It's been great. Thank you. I'm so grateful for all, all that you said and all that you shared so courageously and honestly. Um, just as we're finishing, is there anything in your heart or mind that you'd really like to say and conclude in conclusion? Um, I just want to reiterate that, you know, the purpose of me speaking about this is to try and help our churches to be to become safer places for women to um, to tell their stories of abuse. Um, and I think, firstly, I mean, so that if they need to escape present danger, you know, we want to be safe places where women can report that they're being abused and find sanctuary. Um, but also for women to find healing from past hurts. And I think talking about violence against women is one way to make our churches safer places for survivors. Um, and so that's my kind of prayer for our churches um, and for the impact that this study would have. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, massive thank you to Claudine for all that she shared and for her courage to do so. As we mentioned at the start of the podcast, more information about the book, along with where you can find it, is available in the description to today's episode. You can also find it by going to the website, www.equippingthechurch.com, and there search Violence Against Women. Hopefully, after today, many of you are going to go out and buy it and consider using it for a Bible study or life group or something similar. Well, that's it for today, friends. Thanks for being with us for another conversation in our Life and Leadership podcast. We'll be back together shortly. Stay well, God bless, and keep pursuing Jesus with everything you have. Goodbye.